Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. All right, you do need a password for that, so you can go online, take a look at what's offered, and then just let us know you want to be in there. If you're not, it's really definitely worth it. My friends, we are in Matthew chapter 12. I am glad that last week is not this week, because uh, what a beautiful day we had last week. We had the opportunity to baptize uh, three folks, uh, Chris and CG and Sydney, and it was just a, a really sweet afternoon, so uh, do whatever you want with that. I'm just telling you, it was a lot of fun. Uh, today, my friends, we are in, as I said, Matthew chapter 12, so please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Let me pray for our time together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to jump into the Word, and, and Lord, we do ask every time we come to it, Lord, we ask that you would just open up our hearts to see that is that which you want us to see. Lord, you'd open up our hearts to receive that which you want to give to us. And, and Father, we do pray that this time would be a very fruitful time, Lord, that much fruit would be born as a result of uh, our gathering here together. So minister to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, we left off in Matthew chapter 12 with these ominous words. These are from verse 14. Jesus had just uh, had some interaction with the religious leaders, and then we read this in verse 14. It says, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him to destroy him. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him to destroy him. They had had enough of this Jesus guy. He just wasn't following their rules and playing by their standards or whatever, and now they decided that they were going to destroy him. They had publicly questioned his authority already, and that didn't do the trick. They had tried to dissuade people from following Jesus. They even threatened some people. If you follow him, these are going to be the consequences of doing so. They even had threatened Jesus himself, but Jesus just continued to minister as he was called to minister. None of those tactics, it, it, seem, it seemed, had been working, and so, and I've, actually it seemed the opposite effect was happening. More and more people seemed to be following him, and so now they make plans to deal with him once and for all, and now they make plans to, even though it's the Sabbath, that they're going to destroy him one day. They're going to kill him. Can you believe it? Well, yeah. You can believe it. You've read the Bible. You know the story. Well, that brings us to our passage today. Jesus, notice what it says in verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and he ordered them not to make him known. So rather than Jesus seeking out a problem, oh yeah, you want to destroy me? You come down here and destroy me. Rather than doing that sort of thing, Jesus withdraws instead. And he does so, I don't think, not because I think he's necessarily afraid, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with being afraid. My daughter and I, we went to feed the cats across the street this week, or a few weeks back, actually. And we went in the house, and she runs around. The lady's got like 48 cats, I think it is, or something. And every cat eats in a different spot of the house with a different bowl and different food or whatever. So I go over with my daughter, and she's running around the house feeding all these cats, and I'm just sort of like looking at the architecture and sitting in the other room. And so then there's this long hall that she has to go down and feed a couple cats down that hall and go into the dark bedrooms. And so she says, Dad, come. I said, what do you need? And she says, I need you to come walk down the long, scary hall with me. And I said, I don't want to go down that hall either. <laughs> and she said, she said, but that's why you're here. You, you came. Come on. She says, come on, big guy. We're going down the hall. So I don't, I'm not ashamed to admit that there are things that scare me. And, and so I don't think it's a problem 
that he might be scared, but I don't think that's why he, uh, he, avoid, he withdraws himself. He withdraws himself because his time had not yet come. Jesus had come to, accompl- to accomplish a specific purpose in a specific way and to do so, according to Daniel chapter 9, at a very specific time. And his time had not yet come, and so he withdraws. It's interesting, you look at the verse, despite his desire to withdraw from public attention, people, it seems, keep seeking after him, following after him, and they're looking to him, as it says there, I guess it's in verse 16, they're looking to him for healing. And so they're coming to him desperate, coming to him in faith, and Jesus doesn't turn them away, and so he heals them. But notice as it says there at the conclusion of verse 16, he orders them not to make him known. So don't go around telling everyone and and publicizing. Now, obviously, you know, if you couldn't walk and now you can walk, people are going to ask questions. And you're probably going to have to tell them some things here. But Jesus isn't looking to draw a crowd to this healing ministry. He's trying to step out of the public eye. And this healing ministry could really, if it was a well-promoted one, would thrust him into the public eye. And so he tells them, please, just, let's just keep this between ourselves because he's not draw, trying to draw people to himself in this instance here and in that way. Now, in verse 17, notice what Matthew once again points out. He says, now this was to fulfill what was spoken of by Isaiah the prophet. And so we've been studying through the book of Matthew. We're about a third of the way through or so, maybe close to half of the way through. And we've seen again and again phrases like, this was to fulfill what was written, or as it was written, you know, he did these particular things. And so remember that Matthew, in particular, of the four Gospels, Matthew in particular was writing to Jews, and his purpose was to show those Jews that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, that Jesus is the Messiah that was long after uh, prophesied that he would come. And so again and again, Matthew will reference how this was a fulfillment of this prophecy. This kid brings a ukulele in with him to church. You know, at first I was going to ignore it, but everyone's looking. Why does that kid have a ukulele? You know, I don't know. But anyhow, you're of the devil. Uh, Just kidding. We love you. So anyhow, Matthew keeps writing about how this is a fulfillment of the prophecy. Now, this particular time, Matthew draws our attention to Isaiah chapter 42. And he quotes about five verses from Matthew 20, or excuse me, from Isaiah 42 here in Matthew chapter 12. Let me read those, starting in verse 18. He says, Now behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings victory. And in his name the Gentiles would hope. And so there in the Old Testament, the Lord, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, presents to us some clear indicators of evidence, if you will, that the Messiah has come. And the first, maybe most significant indicator, is found in verse 18 of Matthew 12, and he says, Behold my servant. He calls him my servant. And certainly for the Jews in Jesus' day, even the Jews in the Old Testament days, they were not expecting a Messiah that was going to come who was going to be a servant. In their minds, they're asking the question, why on earth would the Christ be a servant? Because the Jew was looking for a conquering king. 
The Jew wasn't looking for a suffering servant. Just like you wouldn't be looking for a suffering servant, you'd be looking for a conquering king too, particularly if you were a people that were oppressed and under the rule of a foreign dominating power. And so the Jew was looking for a king who would come and overthrow the Roman oppressor. The Jew was looking for one that would come and right the wrongs and correct the injustices. And yet Jesus, when he declares of himself in another place, he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So despite the fact that he is God in the flesh, Jesus never set himself up to be served by others, but rather he came in service to others, ultimately serving us to the point where he would lay down his own life for us. You know, the scripture even says that even now he continues to serve his bride, the church, and that he is at the right hand of his father, continuing to manifest his love for the church by interceding for her continually before the father, as it tells us in the book of Hebrews. And so for the very first evidence that Matthew gives that Jesus is who he said he was. He points back to the prophet Isaiah and he presents the credential, so to speak, of Jesus being a servant, the servant nature of Jesus. He continues in verse 18 and notice he points out there the way in which God's Messiah was to be anointed by the Spirit. He says, I will put my spirit upon him. Also in verse 18, he refers to the fact that the Lord, was, the Lord being the Father, was going to be well pleased with the Son. And so there it says, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. Now, no doubt those words are somewhat reminiscent to you of a similar passage that we've already looked at in the New Testament. And in Matthew chapter 3, we read this. This is at the baptism of Christ. He went out into the wilderness. John baptized him. And it said, now when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so the second indicator that Matthew points to is the way in which the father acknowledged his ministry, commended his ministry and anointed him with his spirit. Isaiah and Matthew here continue. Look at verse 19. It says, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Now, that's not to say that Jesus never raised his voice or that he, even got in, that he never got into disputes with other people because we see examples of the fact that he did. The point of that phrase there is to point out the gentle and humble nature of God's Messiah, that he would come and he wouldn't be some bombastic and boisterous rabble rouser of sort. But as we saw last week, that he would be meek and that he would be lowly in heart. And so Matthew points that out as far as Jesus' ministry continuing. Matthew quotes the prophet and he declares this. He says, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings victory. Now the reed was a delicate branch of a plant which grew in the marshy areas of the wilderness of that region. And the reed of a healthy plant was easily broken unless great care was taken around it. And so here you have, if a healthy reed is easily broken, imagine the care that would be needed around a bruised reed. And it's certainly not the type of care that you would expect to receive from the Messiah of God. If in your mind you're picturing that he's going to come as a conquering king, 
then as a conquering king, he's just got to mow things down. He's got to move fast, you know, and everything has to kind of get out of his way. And if there's something that is bruised and weak, then that has to be left behind because I must move forward. And yet here you have a Messiah of which it says, a bruised reed, he will not break. We also have that it says, a smoldering wick, he will not quench, but rather he will carefully trim that wick. And he will provide it with the necessary oxygen and the care so that it can come, come back again into the flicker and to a flame. Now, as we think about our lives, how many of us were and are bruised reeds or smoldering wicks when the Lord came and find, found us and how he comes and finds us every day of our lives? And he comes in and he enters in and he begins to just care for us and nurture us and bring us back to the place of health to be that strong reed or to be that flick, flickering flame or whatever. But you think of how many other kings would have just cast us off. I, think of, I keep thinking of that Christmas song that we see a lot. How many kings came down from that? You want me to sing it? I'll sing it. If that's what you're looking for. I just need a couple of head nods from some of you to please stop, please stop, you know, or whatever. But we sing that song a lot about how many kings would come down from their throne and, and walk amongst us or whatever. And here, how many other kings would have said, look, you seem like a nice guy, but I really got to move on to those that's worthy of my time to invest in. Because if I'm going to make some kind of a kingdom impact, I really got to focus on those that are worth me focusing on. I'm sorry. And yet our Messiah comes and he focuses on those that everyone else would leave behind. And I asked Jay to sing, what a wonderful Savior. I just love the song. Because that's our Savior. And he comes and he ministers to us, even when we're weakened now, there's a last marker of the Messiah. It's found in verse 21, and it says, and in his name, the Gentiles would hope. Now, this marks uh, a distinctive change in so many ways in the ministry of Jesus from this point on in the book of Matthew, because increasingly now, Jesus is going to be ministering to the Gentile people. Now, he's still exclusively really focusing his attention on the Jews, but more and more and more now, you're going to see him turning his attention to the Gentiles as the official position of the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, is to reject this guy. We've made our decision about him, and he's not good. And so we re we're rejecting him, and so increasingly he'll be going to the Gentiles. And so this passage says, and in his name the Gentiles would hope. And it's just evidence of the fact, or it speaks to the fact that of Jesus' ministry that he would have amongst the Gentiles. I suspect somewhere above 90% of the population of this room is Gentile in nature. I know that we have a few folks that have kind of grown up as Jews or uh, you know, Jewish culture and background or whatever, but the vast majority of us are likely Gentiles, and the ministry did quickly pass on, if you will, to the Gentile people. Not to say that a Jew can't get saved or can't be ministered to by the Messiah, but the ministry did make a transition to the Gentile people. And so uh, Isaiah and then Matthew, he comments on that. As the Jewish leaders rejected the claims of Christ in his ministry, the gospel then would begin to go forth beyond the borders of Israel, as Jesus would say in another place, to the uttermost parts of the earth. No surprise, or excuse me, they were a surprise, no doubt, to the Jewish listeners. And a matter of fact, they were somewhat offensive to the Jewish listeners. Gentiles. Why would you go to the Gentiles? We're Jews. That sort of thing. You know, I was comparing it to if the way we think that Americans were the greatest in, in the world as people. 
you know, and if we said something like, you know, I want to focus instead amongst, you know, members of ISIS or something, we would almost be offended by that. You're going to go to those people? What about us good Americans or something like that? And so the message is going to go forth to the gospel. Now, apparently that offended some of you here. Look at you. My goodness. All right, I'll drop that from the next talk. I don't want to offend anybody. You know, we came here to Never mind. Let's move on. Now, the passage is going to continue. We have another conflict that Jesus has with the religious leaders. I don't know why I just don't go away from him, but they keep finding him. This time it's going to be over the fact that there is a demon-oppressed man that was brought to him from, for healing. And it starts in verse 22. Let me read it to you. It says, Then a demon-oppressed demon man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the Son of God? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So we, let's go back to verse 22 and look through those verses. Verse 22 again, we're told that a demon-possessed man, blind and mute, presumably because of the demon, was brought to him, and that Jesus heals him, and as a result of that, the man is able to see and able to speak again. Now, as we've been going through the book of Matthew, we've seen a number of examples where Jesus delivers people from either demonic possession or demonic oppression, and we spent some time breaking that down. So we looked in Matthew chapter 4, twice in Matthew chapter 8, and then again in Matthew chapter 9, where that was the type of ministry that Jesus was ha having. And at that time, in each of those times, I mentioned to you one of the prevailing views of the day regarding demonic possession and oppression is that the key, it's not, it's not biblical, it was just the idea of the day, is that the key to delivering a person from their demon was to find out the name of the demon and then to order that demon by name, you're going to have to hit the road. As if the demon would tell you the truth, you know. What's your name? Because I'm kicking you out of here. My name is Sam. You know, no. He would probably lie to you and say, it's Billy. Try, you know, and it would never happen. And so it was considered impossible then for a person that was mute to be delivered since there was no way to get that demon to reveal his name to you. And yet, as we see in this passage, and we've seen it before, Jesus is able, and he does, he heals this demon-oppressed man that was both blind and mute. Now, look at verse 23. You can see the people are amazed. It says, all the people were amazed. And they said, can this be the son of David? Now, I suspect if you observed anyone being delivered from demonic possession or oppression, that that would be amazing to you. But the fact that this guy was mute and Jesus didn't go through this whole routine, give me your name, I said give me your name, you know, one of these whole things, but that he just went to the guy and he healed the guy, it blew, it blew their mind, as you can see. And notice they asked the question, can this be the son of David? Now, in the English language, it gives the impression that they're like, like they're believing this, you know, they're, they're right there. Can this be the son of David? Look what's happening here. But the way that it's worded in the original, it's designed to give us the impression 
that it's as if they're saying, this couldn't be the son of David, could it? That they don't really believe that it could possibly be the son of David. And so they ask this question, this couldn't really be the son of David. The, the point is that I'm making is where they're like, you know, everything seems to be pointing to the fact that it's the son of David, but this couldn't really be him. Where's the conquering king? Where's the riding in on a white horse? Where's the overthrowing of the Roman government? Now, the general population couldn't believe this. The Pharisees and religious leaders wouldn't believe this. And there's a very big distinction. It's one thing where you're like, no way, I can't believe it. But you're willing to if the evidence shows it. It's another thing where you just say, I will not believe that. I won't let my mind, I won't let my heart go to that particular place. And that was the attitude of the Pharisees and religious leaders. So in verse 24, they say, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Now this is the second time that they have hurled this particular accusation at Jesus. The first time was back in Matthew chapter 9. And at that time, that we have no record, Matthew chapter 9, no record of Jesus addressing the issue. They say, you only do this by the power of Satan. And he sort of, yeah. And I don't know if that's what he did. That's my bad attitude. That's what I would have done. And he just sort of went on with things. Here, though, Jesus isn't having it anymore. So he says something about it. Verse 25, he says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself, itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, then he is divided against himself. So how will his kingdom stand? F.F. F. Bruce is a Bible commentator. He said this about that, this phrase here, this scenario. He said, Satan may be wicked, but he is no fool. Satan may be wicked, but he is no fool. Why would Satan cast out Satan or one demon cast out another demon? What good would that accomplish for his kingdom? And obviously the answer is no good. And so Jesus points out the absurdity of their argument against him. He gives a second rebuttal. This is posed in the form of a question. And he said, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, which was like the lord of the demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? It's another way of saying Satan. Therefore, they will be your judges. And so the Jews, they had their demon deliverance ministries as, as well at that particular time. And so Jesus says, if I'm casting them out by the power of Satan, what about your religious leaders? Really what Jesus is doing is saying, look, it's okay what they do, but not what I do. He's calling them out for their hypocrisy once again. He always seems to be calling them out for their hypocrisy, and that's why they want to kill him, because they couldn't stop him. Once again, the Pharisees show a remarkable ability to see and point out the wrong that everybody else is doing, but to miss the wrong that they themselves are doing. And again, it's a case, as we look at the religious leaders, it's a case of their hardened hearts refusing to see or to comprehend what's going on in front of them. So verse 28, Jesus continues, he says, but if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast the demons out, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, and you're missing it. I'll add that to what Jesus is saying. There's two things I want to point out. The first pertains to the context of this passage. The second has to do with a different issue, and we'll get to it. Notice Jesus declares to these folks, you are about to miss that which your people have been waiting for for 4,000 years. You're about to miss it. 
When Adam and Eve fell, there was a promise that God would send a deliverer. And for 4,000 years since then, you have been waiting for that to come, and I am here in your midst, and you're claiming that I'm empowered by Satan. You're about to miss that which God, that you have been waiting for for 4,000 years. Now skip down for a moment to verse 31 and 32. It says there, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And so these guys are, be, are either dangerously close to or they already have committed what is referred to as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And a few weeks back, I, I mentioned this, but I do think it's important again, because here we are again looking at it, to just point out some things about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Be reminded, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to testify of Jesus Christ. It's to ultimately lift him up. As it says in another place, if the Son of Man is lifted up, all men will be drawn to himself. I think Jesus was talking about the cross in that particular instance. But it's the same idea. As we lift up the Son of Man, as we glorify the Son of Man, people are drawn to him. And it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to do so. And so the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to testify of Jesus Christ, to, to therefore declare that the work of Jesus Christ is actually empowered by a demon or empowered by Satan is to call the Holy Spirit a liar. And calling the Holy Spirit a liar is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it can come in the form of announcing that the work of Christ is actually the work of Satan, or I think it can come in the form that it comes on a daily basis and the people that we interact with, which is essentially to say that this idea that Jesus Christ was sent into the world to deal with man's sin and that he went to a cross so that man could be forgiven of that sin is to essentially say, yeah, well, I don't believe that. That's not true. That's nonsense or foolishness. This passage is pretty clear because in doing that, by the way, you're calling the Holy Spirit a liar. Because the Holy Spirit is the one that is saying, he's right. She's right. You need to listen to what he's saying or she is saying. And instead, you're calling the Holy Spirit a liar. And this passage is very clear that to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to never have forgiveness. It's what is referred to as the unpardonable sin. Now, again, I mentioned a few weeks back, months back or whatever, that oftentimes folks will come to myself or to other leaders of some sorts, counselors, that kind of thing, and they'll say something to the effect of, I'm afraid that I may have committed the unpardonable sin. And they're usually they'll point to something like, you know, I did this big sin or that big sin, whatever it may be, and I'm afraid that I may have committed the unpardonable sin. And I would just throw this out there with you. If you're worried that you committed the unpardonable sin, you probably haven't committed the unpardonable sin. Because if you had committed the unpardonable sin, you wouldn't even care that you committed the unpardonable sin. Because what would happen is your heart would harden over in such a way that there would be no way for the Holy Spirit to kind of minister to the softness of your heart. Remember earlier when I prayed, Lord, just give us soft hearts to receive what it is you want for us? Well, when the heart hardens over, it can't receive the ministry work of the Holy Spirit. Can a person commit the unpardonable sin in our day? Absolutely. Can we know for sure that he has or she has or that person has? No, I don't believe we can. Because even a person's life that we might look at and say, man, that, they're a hard-hearted person. 
God can enter in at any moment. We've seen examples of it and break that heart. But there does come a time, and we certainly do know this, if you leave this earth have not, not having received the gift of Christ's salvation, you leave this earth in that condition, you've committed the unpardonable sin. And when you stand before our Savior, and you basically testify, you know, I know that people said it, I know the Holy Spirit ministered to it, but I refuse to accept it, then there is no forgiveness for you. It's the gift of salvation. So if you know people that you suspect their heart has been hardened over to the word of God, hardened over to the ministry of the gospel, continue to pray for them. Pray, pray, pray for them that their heart would be open and that they would receive. Now, I want to take some time to discuss this idea of the hardening of a person's heart. I t entitled the message, How to Harden Your Heart. How to Harden Your Heart. Sounds like a dumb message title, right? What kind of church is this? Or whatever. And as a matter of fact, there was a few people early on when we were setting up chairs, and the thing went up on the screen that said, How to Harden Your Heart. And one of them was a young person. He was like, I think there's a mistake on the, uh, the slide up there. Why would we want to harden your heart? I don't want you, I've named it How to Harden Your Heart, not because I want you to go out and do so, but hopefully so that we, knowing how it happens, we can avoid those things that might cause that to happen in our own hearts. That make sense? All right, so if you're jotting down notes, remember, do all the opposite things of what we're talking about. When we talk of or speak of having a hardened heart, we're talking about a heart that has been calloused over and thus hindered from receiving that which the Lord wants to teach us. And if we have any hope of receiving from the Lord, we must have soft, pliable hearts that can be shaped and molded into the image of his son. In one, in one parable, Jesus likened our hearts to soil. And in Matthew 13, we're going to look at it in a few weeks, but in Matthew 13, it said, Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And as a, again, we're going to dig into that passage when we get there in a few weeks here. But just to kind of make the point for today, the seed, Jesus will tell us later on in the chapter, is the word of God. And the soil that the seed is planted into is the condition of our hearts or a person's heart. Now, in that parable, we see that there's a variety of soils that the same seed is sown into. And each one of those soils leading up to this particular soil, growth is either stunted or it is hindered altogether. That the seed goes in and it can take no root, or the seed goes in and it takes root and something stunts its growth. But in this case of the one that I'm sharing with you, you have a heart that is open. You have a heart that is soft and ready to receive. And that is the ideal ground for much fruit to be born. And that's the sort of heart, Jesus says, that we are to have. And so we want to avoid having a hardened heart. So how exactly do we do it? Is a person with a hardened heart, is it just some sort of random occurrence that some people have hard hearts and other people have soft hearts and it's just sort of the luck of the draw? Or to say it another way, are there things that we can be doing and conversely things that we cannot be doing that create a condition for our hearts to be soft and pliable, ready to receive, or hard and resistant to what God might have for us? Well, in Hebrews chapter 3, the book of Hebrews, it says this. He's quoting, the author is quoting the book of Psalms, and he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. 
And so if we're told not to harden our hearts, then evidently there is something we can be doing and cannot be doing that will harden our hearts. And I want to look at a few ways. The primary way, the primary way in which we can harden our hearts is through unrepentant sin. Now we know that all of us are sinners. And as since we are sinners, sin will be evident in our lives. But as a child of God, our desire should be to not sin. So to not approach it from an inevitability, oh, well, it's just kind of who I am. I've grown up this way. I've always been this way. And just it's sort of an inevitability. As a Christian, you should continually be growing. And the Lord should keep showing you areas of your life. And believe me, when you get into the Lord 25, 30 years, he begins to show areas to you in your life that you can't believe are still there. And also, you would have probably laughed at those things 30 years ago. And so I remember as the Lord began to show things, initially in my walk, they were sort of the big things, the glaring things that everybody else was noticing as well, and sort of hoping, like, I hope the Lord deals with you because we're tired of you, or whatever. But now I'm dealing with things in my life that other people may not even notice, and I might look back to back then, I might look at and say, you're really... You want me to stop being so aggressive as a driver, Lord? How does that have anything to do with my walk with the Lord? Or whatever. And, but that's what the Lord's dealing with. And my job is to respond to it. And so our desire should be to not sin. When sin becomes evident in our lives, God puts his finger on an area of our lives. We are called to repent of that sin. That means acknowledge it. You know, you're right, Lord. Turn from it and forsake it. You know what? I'm done with it. I'm not going back to it. You may go back to it. You may slip up here and there, but the idea is that you acknowledge it's sin and you commit yourself, you know what, I'm done with it and I'm moving on. But sadly, too often, I think what happens in our walks are, are things like this. God puts his finger on an area and we rationalize that sin. And so we begin to debate with God and we say, well, but Lord, this is a different time from those times back then. But Lord, you know, look at that lady. Look at her, you know, or whatever. Look at that guy over there. My sin's not so bad compared to, you know, somebody else. We rationalize the sin. Sometimes, have you done this? Don't raise your hand, please. But have you done this? Have you bargained with God? And so God puts his finger on an area, and I don't know what the area is, but let's say seven times a week you're involved in that particular sin. And so you bargain with God and say, you know what, Lord, I think you're right. How about, how about we cut back to three times a week? or whatever, and you begin to bargain with him and make deals with him. Other times, and I've done this many times in my walk with the Lord, I try to ignore the conviction or get so busy doing other stuff, put the radio on, watch TV, go play a game, mow the lawn or something, do other things so that maybe the conviction will go away. And in a day or so, typically the conviction goes away, but then it comes back, the Lord's gracious, and it doesn't feel like it, but he is. And it comes back a week later, and it's twice as strong or whatever. And you try and do the same thing again. But too often, rather than dealing with sin, we rationalize and we bargain, we attempt to ignore. And every time we do those things, we run the risk of having our hearts hardened a little bit more and a little bit more. Somebody has compared it to the developing of calluses on our hands after repeated use. You know, so in the winter, you know, most of us are in the house or whatever, and our hands get all sort of soft, and then spring comes, and we go outside, and we get the shovel, and we start digging, and we come in, and we have all these, like, tender areas, right, what is this place called? 
the callous, I think, right? <laughs> you know, everyone threw out 80 different words. You know, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You feel good about it. So anyway, all this area is tender. You know, and we might even have blisters begin to form. But if we get out there again with the shovel, you know, as soon as it starts to get hard and we're protected. And that's good if you're talking about avoiding blisters. But it's very bad if you're talking about the condition of your heart. And so every time that we rationalize sin or minimize sin or ignore sin, we desensitize ourselves little by little to the voice of the Lord. And if your desire is for God to continue to speak to you, then you need to heed his voice when he does speak to you. And if you want to maintain a heart that is able to hear his voice, then you have to respond to his leading, even in matters that might seem negligible. And so sometimes when I work with newer believers, I'm excited to hear them express a conviction about a particular area which I know might seem relatively negligible. Like, as I mentioned, you know, I feel my driving or whatever, I feel bad because I, I don't let people in at the merge there. And I, I pretend I don't see them, but I see them or whatever. And, you know, I feel guilty about it or whatever. And most people would be like, eh, you know what, I'm dealing with people that have drug addictions. I'm dealing with people that are, you know, tempted to a, an adulterous affair. Merging on the highway is not that big a deal. It might seem negligible. But I never want to give that impression to the person because that person is developing the habit of listening to the Lord. And every time that we say yes to what the Lord might be leading us toward, we're developing a familiarity with his voice. It's interesting. In John chapter 10, we have that well-known passage where Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. And he says, I am the good shepherd. A little bit later, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now that phrase there, my sheep hear my voice, that could be translated my sheep recognize my voice. My sheep recognize my voice. The other day I was at the hospital and coming up the hallway, you know, in hospitals, voices just echo or whatever, and coming up the hallway, 15 rooms down the hall, I heard my dad's voice. And he was talking to some nurse. He talks to all the nurses and he's picking up chicks, I think, while he's there or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, Dad, everyone loves you, you know, whatever. And they're giving him free coffee. Come on, I got more food. You want food? Or so anyway, but I heard his voice down the end of the hall. And I recognized his voice. And that's the idea to become so familiar with the voice of the Lord that you recognize it when you hear it. You sense it when you feel it, if you will. And so the idea, his sheep are used to hearing his voice and responding to his voice. The more we heed and the more we respond to the voice of the Lord, the more familiar it becomes and the more recognizable it becomes. And so may I suggest and encourage if the Lord is telling you to seemingly negligible things, but he's telling you, for instance, not to watch that particular program, then don't watch that program. He's got a reason for why he's telling you, listen to him. If he's telling you not to go to that particular place, then don't go to that place. Hear his voice. If he's telling you to go over there and say something to that person, then go over and say something to that person. Every time you heed his voice in the so-called negligible matters, you will grow in sensitivity toward the significant matter. So the first thing is listen. The second uh, area in which our hearts can become hardened is through pride. We see an example of this. It's in the book of Exodus. Moses there goes before Pharaoh, 
It petitions him for permission to lead the slaves, the children of Israel, out into the wilderness to worship the Lord there. The account begins around chapter 7. It goes on for about three chapters, four chapters. And again and again, as Moses is going before Pharaoh, we see repeatedly Pharaoh rejecting the leading of God. And it says again and again, and his heart was hardened, or he hardened his heart, or, or something in, in those phrases there. And so when the water was turned to blood and the plagues of frogs came, we see that he hardened his heart. We see it when there was an infestation of gnats and flies. And I'll tell you, that's when I would have given up. You know, and I'll do anything you need, you know, the gnats and the flies. We see it when the Egyptian livestock dies, but not the Jewish people's livestock. And then there's a plague of boils. And again and again, and it's just prior to the eighth plague, that was the plague of hail that fell upon the nation there, the empire there. And the Lord asks this question of Pharaoh. He says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself? And so we see pride or the lack of humility hardens a heart towards the things of God. And so we need to be repentant of our sin is the first example there. And the second one here has to do with the pride uh, and, and avoiding pride. And, and can I give you one third one? And this has to do with exposure. And so let me give you a scenario. When, when I was a school teacher, I used to teach at Ewing High School. And high school, I loved, when I was young, I loved this idea of, oh, I want to be a high school teacher because there's action and there's things going on and, you know, kids stay after school and there's games and, and all of that. And I was one of the advisors essentially in charge of making lots of noise. And so I would gather the kids, and we'd have a pep rally and make lots of noise, or we'd have a dance and turn the music up real loud and, and all of these sorts of things. And I was just in the midst of it, and you'd go out in the hall, and there'd be a zoo, and everyone's talking and just being kids, but everyone's talking and yelling and running and this and that. And I was in the midst of it, and it was, loved it. Well, then, you know, I left teaching. I came here. I started working here, and I went back to a basketball game. And it was a big basketball game, and the whole gym was packed. And I'm sitting there in the gym. And I'm thinking, these kids are so loud. <laughs> My gosh, they're so loud. Everyone's talking or whatever. And I just, I really wanted to go to a library somewhere and just sort of sit there. Now, as I look out and I considered what the kids were doing, they weren't being crazy. You know, it wasn't a riot or something that was going on. They were just being the same kids they were five years ago when I was immersed into the midst of it. And I didn't notice it. And I think another way that we can harden our hearts is by continual exposure to those things that are not pleasing to the Lord. And so we need to be very, very careful because sometimes we say, well, I'm strong enough. I'm strong. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever gone to the beach? Uh, maybe I'll ask the men and ladies you can listen to or whatever. But you go to the beach and, you know, basically half of the people there, the ladies, are basically running around in their underwear because they're in a bikini top and bottom and running around. Now, but you're out on the beach and you're just sort of doing your beach thing and you're running in the water, you're not really noticing it. But then, if I bring you to you know, the streets of Ewing Township and there's people running around in bikinis, you'd be blown away, like, oh my gosh, they're like naked, or whatever. You see, because in that setting, you've become desensitized to it. And so my point is just simply this, be careful what you expose yourself to on a regular basis. Because the more and more you expose yourself to it, the more comfortable your heart is going to become toward it, and you may not even realize any longer that your heart is hardening over to that particular thing. Does that make sense? 
Okay, so I skipped over really verses something like 27 to, to 30. I read them, but I really didn't talk to them. That's about the binding of the strong man. What I want to do is I want to go back to that next week, and we'll pick up there, even though we, we went beyond it a little bit. So if you're going to read ahead, start again with verse uh, 28, and you can read to the end of the chapter, and that's what we'll look at next week, okay? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and Lord, just I think a very helpful reminder to us. Lord, I think there's a real danger, the further along we are in the Lord, to sort of forget some of those basic building blocks of our faith that we put into place in the early years. And, and certainly, Lord, we want to use wisdom in our walks with you. And so, Father, we're just simply asking, Lord, by your spirit, Lord, that you would minister to our hearts. You'd put your finger on certain areas. You'd point out maybe examples of ways in which uh, we are allowing the calluses to form. And, Lord, that you would just minister in such a way that not only that you bring a conviction, but you bring a drawling as well, where our desire will be. I want to be where you want me to be, Lord. And so... I'll follow you in obedience, and, and Lord, we believe that in that, good things will be occurring in our lives. And so, Lord, we love you. We ask for you to bless this word now, Lord, and that it would bear fruit, uh, take up root and bear fruit in our hearts. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.